in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the building, it's not the programs, it's the people. And uh, that's something that we need to be reminded of from time to time, isn't it? You know, think about all of the uh, organizations that maybe you've belonged to or been a part of over the years, um, <clears throat> whether it's a school, a church, a sports team, a club. Sometimes they've got great facilities and great programs, but you know what? If you take all the people away, all you have are empty buildings and no programs. It is the people, and that is certainly true of the church, and I would say even more so. And with that in mind, today we're going to be talking about biblical leadership, God's order for his church. Before I do that, though, just by way of uh, an announcement, there will be a trustee Uh, The trustees have called for a business meeting of the congregation following church today to discuss boiler issues. doesn't feel like it today because it's nice outside, but winter is on its way. And uh, we've got some issues that we need to discuss about replacing our boiler here. So uh, 60 years old, I think it is. Let's say we've got our money's worth. (laughs) But anyway, just make a mental note of that. There are many things that are coming up uh, that you'll want to be sure and and review the the bulletin for. I'm not going to take the time to do that this morning, but make sure that you look at that. We've got ladies' Bible study coming up. Uh, The conference for the missions is coming up. So there's lots of things that are brewing. Uh, But make sure that if you're a member, you don't just skedaddle out of here on your way to Wendy's for a burger after church. Hang out and let us conduct some business. And uh, I think it'll be pretty painless and pretty quick. It's just we need the congregation to weigh in on a decision of this magnitude. So our trustees have done a fine job putting together the information for us. And they will be available to answer questions that we have at that meeting. So, Amen? All right. I guess I should probably break out my PowerPoint clicker thing, right? Look, it's actually working today. It seems like it does that when I remember to do things the right way. (laughs) Biblical leadership, God's order for his church. Uh, Today, we're going to take a break from Galatians for a two-week study on church leadership by the Bible. And this is a really important subject because the Bible has an established plan that God has put in motion for how his church is to be governed. And is in any area that God has spoken, we need to hear what he has to say and we need to be obedient to his word. But that is especially important when it comes to the church because the church has a special place in God's plan for the ages. Now, people are tempted to think that church governmental structure is a trivial matter. Something not to be taken too seriously, that it's really more important for us to be focused on things like the Great Commission. And I would say absolutely, it is. The Great Commission should be our number one priority. And yet, to neglect church government is to invite problems. The sad truth is most people don't leave churches because of doctrinal differences. Used to be that way, not any longer. Nowadays, most people leave churches because of fighting, personality clashes, and oftentimes those result from church governmental structures that are not biblical, but are cumbersome and are man-made. On the other hand, churches that use leadership structures as those established in the Bible enjoy statistically 
a higher ministry participation among their members, fewer issues involving interpersonal conflict, and greater levels of spiritual care and leadership. Any serious discussion of church government must begin with a look at the origin of the church. And of course, we find in the book of Acts that the church began on the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago. But to fully appreciate the day of Pentecost, we've got to go back further still. And that's because the church is comprised of the redeemed. From every age, from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, God has redeemed for himself a people, and that people is the church. Are you glad to be redeemed this morning? I know I certainly am. So even though the history of the church began on the day of Pentecost, God's story of redemption is much, much older. The story of redemption is a story of grace and mercy, a story of God's love reaching down to rescue a lost and broken humanity. It's a story of God saving a people for himself. And we know that story. Why? Because God has graciously revealed it to us. That's why we know the story. It's a story that begins with rejection, but ends in reconciliation. It's a story that began in the Garden of Eden, but will end in the new heavens and the new earth. A story of paradise lost and paradise regained forever. So with that in mind, we're going to begin this morning with a brief look at the story of redemption. And specifically, we're going to consider the major provisions of redemptive history. The major provisions of redemption of redemptive history. It's These are the great events of God's saving grace. The first major provision is the revelation of God in the Old Testament. The revelation of God in the Old Testament. I want you to think for just a moment about the enormity of the universe. How vast, how big. I mean, words fail us. In fact, with the uh, invention of the Hubble telescope and, and even more sophisticated measuring devices, uh, algorithms and, and such, scientists tell us today that the best they can guess for the size of the universe is 93 billion light years across. Think about it. If you were able to travel at the speed of light, they say it would take you 93 billion years to traverse from one side of the universe to the other. 93 billion years. Feel small? <laughs> I was going to say we're specks, right? The Milky Way is a speck. 93 billion light years across. And then think about the immense complexity of life itself. I'm teaching psychology classes from a Christian perspective over at Lindenwood University. And one of the things that I like to do is to prepare my messages with a thought in mind, what is the biblical truth that I can emphasize from this lecture? So the other day, one of the biblical truths that I emphasized was the complexity of the human mind. 
Of course, the purpose there is to help to show them the fallacy of thinking that there is no God. For the human brain is estimated to contain billions of neural connections. I didn't say thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions or hundreds of millions. I said billions, billions of neural connections in the human mind, the human brain. A brain that is a mere three pounds in weight. Staggering. Or consider human DNA. That it is sophisticated and highly encoded information. Now, anyone with any common sense knows that when you have encoded information, you have an encoder, right? You used to buy computers and they didn't have any programs on them. Then you had to buy the programs, right? And then they figured out that they could compete with each other by coming preloaded with a lot of software. But any good IT person will tell you that a computer is only as good as the programs that it runs and the programs are only as good as the people that created those programs, right? The point that I'm making is that when we look at the enormous size of our universe and when we look at the amazing, incomprehensible complexity of life itself. It causes us to realize that the God who did it all is bigger than we can imagine. That God is beyond our comprehension. And that it's only by His grace that He reveals Himself to us through His Word and through His Spirit. Indeed, the only way that we could come to know God is if He would reveal Himself to us. And the good news is, He did. He did reveal Himself to us. The writer of Hebrews says, God at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets. That revelation of God spoke of various aspects of God's character and His attributes. It described the nature of man. It told us about the reality of sin. It spoke of Satan's rebellion and the great conflict that is being waged throughout the cosmos. But the most significant topic revealed by God was redemption. Redemption. That in His grace and in His mercy, God told us the reality about ourselves. That we are sinful, we are lost, we are broken, and we are in need of a Savior. And that message of redemption has been in the heart of God from the foundation of the world. So the Bible contains wonderful pictures of redemption. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, Chapter 3 of Genesis, we are given the first glimpse of redemption, what scholars call the Proto-Euangelion, the first good news, the first message of good news. And it was when Adam and Eve sinned, and when God manifested his presence in the garden following that first trespass, what was the first thing that he did? He slew an animal and took that animal's hide and made them clothing to cover their shame. And it was a picture of a Messiah who would come and who would not only cover our shame, but He would literally take our sin 
away. And then we think about the flood when God sent judgment upon the earth. But before he did, he made provision for redemption for Noah and for his family. Or as we saw last week, the exodus of Israel from Egyptian bondage. God made provision for his people, not only to be freed, but he even cared for them in their rebellion in the wilderness for 40 years. Talk about grace. Not only did he redeem, but when they became stiff-necked and said, we're not going into that land, they'll kill us. We're grasshoppers in their eyes. They're giants. Talk about hyperbole. And they were turned back into the wilderness to wander for four decades. And yet even in the wilderness, God provided for them. He is a redemptive God, a God of grace, a God of mercy, a God who is long-suffering and patient, a God who extends love to us. So these beautiful pictures of redemption are just chock full in the Bible. I mean, they're everywhere present. And that first major provision of redemptive history is, in fact, God's revelation. He revealed himself to us as his first step in bringing redemption. And then the second major provision, the incarnation of God in Christ. For Hebrews continues then, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. So he revealed himself through his word and he's revealed himself through his son. And this text, of course, highlights the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are many skeptics out there that say, well, Jesus was a good man. He was an awesome teacher. He was a prophet of God. He was a religious leader. And certainly we know that all those things are true. But they fall short of the whole story. For Jesus was and is God. He is God the Son. Second person of the Trinity. And that, that truth is clear throughout the scriptural record. In the Gospel of John, first chapter, we're told, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In verse 9 of that same chapter, he tells us that Jesus is the true light who gives light to every man coming into the world. Paul, in Colossians chapter 1 that we read this morning, speaks of Jesus, saying the Son is the image of the invisible God. And then in 1 John, we're told the word of life was seen and looked at and touched with our hands that this only begotten Son of God It is He who has revealed the Father to us. And all of that in fulfillment of what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call him Emmanuel, which is God with us. So the second major provision of redemptive history was when God revealed himself through the incarnation of Christ. The third, the crucifixion of Christ. 
On the night of his betrayal, Jesus was partaking of the Passover feast with his disciples. And then he picked up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You see, it was the sacrificial death of Jesus that established the new covenant. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. The crucifixion of Christ, the third major provision of redemptive history. The fourth, the resurrection of Christ. Aren't you glad He rose from the grave? In fact, it was the resurrection of Christ that ratified the sacrifice of Christ. What do you mean? Well, it was God's affirmation that He had accepted Jesus' death on our behalf. His wrath had turned away from us and had focused on Jesus. His righteousness was satisfied. His justice was satisfied. And now in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin. Through His death, and now by His resurrection, we see our redemption. And then the next major provision in redemptive history, the ascension of Christ. Forty days after he was raised from the dead, Jesus gathered with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And the Bible tells us that he was taken up before them and entered into heaven. There he sat down at the right hand of God, and now he is our great high priest, who ever lives to make intercession for us. The session of Christ that he now intercedes on our behalf. But the Bible tells us that on that day when Jesus ascended, he made a monumental prophecy. It's recorded for us in the book of Acts. There in in, uh, verse 8 of chapter 1, we're told the words of Jesus, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. A monumental prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ that was completed and fulfilled ten days later. With the establishment of the church. This was a fulfillment of John 7 and 37 which was another monumental prophecy of Jesus that was given at the Feast of Tabernacles. You'll remember that we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles last week. This was the feast that commemorated the wilderness wanderings of Israel. They were in the wilderness, having been delivered from Egyptian slavery. They refused to go into the promised land, that first offer. And so they were turned back into the wilderness for 40 years. And during that time, they lived in tents or booths. And God provided for them. There was fire by day or fire by night and a cloud by day. There was water provided for them. There was manna provided for them. God cared for them in their rebellion. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was established that they might remember how God provided for them even in their rebellion. In the wilderness. It was an amazing feast. 
And on the last day of that great feast, they performed a beautiful ceremony. It was called the water drawing ceremony. Now picture in your mind a parade where the people are moving along, being led by the priests, and there are singers, and there are musicians, and they're lifting up the sound of joyful celebration as they make their way in Jerusalem to the Pool of Siloam. And the priest that's leading is carrying two pitchers. And one pitcher is full of wine, and the other pitcher is empty. And going to the Pool of Siloam, the priest dips that pitcher down into the pool and fills it with water. And then as they continue to sing and they continue to play, moving now through the water gate on their way to the temple, the choir begins to recite the words from Psalm 118. Jesus is there. Jesus is witnessing this. Listen to the words they recite. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous enter through it. The stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. When you realize the significance of this, that they are singing these prophetic words of David before the very one who is the stone that the builders are about to reject. And yet he will be raised. So they're singing and the music is playing and they come to the altar now in the temple where two silver basins have been prepared, empty. And the priest takes the wine and he pours the wine into one basin as a drink offering before the Lord. And then he takes the pitcher of water and he pours the water into that basin as a celebration of God's provision. And it was here at this great feast of tabernacles where they performed this water ceremony that Jesus, teaching in the temple, lifted His voice and said these words, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in Me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then John went on to say, But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, fast forward. Forty days after the resurrection of Jesus. Fifty days after the death of Jesus. Now it is Pentecost. And the book of Acts tells us in chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them 
utterance. What was happening is that this was the formal beginning and inauguration of the church. This was the day that the church was born. And it was the most recent event in the history of redemption. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he's been building it for 2,000 years. He ransomed the church with his blood. He assured the church's resurrection by his own resurrection from the dead. He intercedes on behalf of the church at the Father's right hand. He empowers the church by his spirit whom he has given Now that he has been glorified, given the spirit to the church to empower us and to indwell us. Jesus, the head of the church. And as the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ has provided a structure by which he governs it. So what is that structure? Well, if we want to know, we've got to turn to the Scriptures. What is the biblical model of church leadership? Well, we begin by considering what biblical church governance is not. The first thing that biblical church government is not, it is not an organization with centralized authority. Unless you're referring to the high command in heaven. It's not an organization with centralized authority. Listen, in the New Testament, there is no hierarchy of churches. In the New Testament, there is no archbishop over groups of congregations, over regions, over nations. doesn't exist. It's not in the book. Don't get mad at me for telling you I'm just the messenger. It's not in the Bible. Not in the New Testament church. So what biblical church governance is not... The church is not an organization with centralized authority other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the church is not a religious democracy. Spoken from a veteran who is a patriot. The church is not a religious democracy. Listen, in the New Testament, there is no hierarchy of churches nor is there a voting membership of the church body on issues determined by its leadership. It is not in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, the only places where you see religious democracy being applied to the things of the kingdom of God, it ends in disaster and judgment from on high. That's just the fact. Third, the church is not a pastoral monarchy. It's not a pastoral monarchy. In the New Testament, you will not find an example of a congregation ruled by one pastor. It's not there. It's not there. Well, if the church is not an organization with a centralized authority, if it's not a religious democracy, if it's not a pastoral monarchy, then what is it? What is the biblical form of church government? Well, the answer is really quite simple. Biblical church governance is a plurality of elders. It's a plurality of elders. Elders which began not with the church, but began with Israel. A long history of elder leadership among the people of God. 
According to the Bible, there are two leadership offices in the church. Elders and deacons. Elders are also known as pastors and spiritual overseers. Deacons are appointed to assist them as needed and as directed. Now, I know that for us as Americans, at first flush, that's like petting a cat backwards. (laughs) Why? Because American churches enjoy a heritage of democratic values, don't we? Uh, The Puritan forefathers came over here not to buy land, not to plant corn. Why did they come? To escape religious persecution. That is why they came. And people who don't want to hear that don't want to hear U.S. history. Because that is why the Puritans came here. They came here to establish a place where people could freely worship God. And then our founding fathers declared their independence from King George of Great Britain. So there's a historical basis for democratic rule in our country and in our churches. But notice, while there is a historical basis for democratic rule in the church, there is not a biblical basis for democratic rule in the church. Not a New Testament basis. But because of that historical basis, American congregations oftentimes are suspicious of elder rule. So the question is, if American churches are suspicious of elder leadership, why change? Right? It seems to serve us well. So why change? Why make a fuss over it if it seems to be working? Well, there's a couple of good reasons for that. The first is, and this is the most important, Elder rule is the New Testament model for church governance. Plain and simple. If you can show me through properly exegeting the scripture that there is something that I've overlooked and that there's another model, I am all ears. But I'm not interested in developing a model of church governance that goes beyond the Bible. You know why? Because one day I'll stand before God and give an account. I don't want him saying, Greg, didn't you trust me to know what I was doing when I established church governance? Well, Lord, (laughs) how do you answer that one? Another reason, we are a Bible-believing church. We believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And if we believe that the Bible is the Word of God, we believe that it is not only inspired, not only inerrant, not only infallible, it is authoritative. It is, thus saith the Lord. This is the Word of God. But there are benefits of returning to the New Testament model of leadership. The first, the blessing of God. All of us know that the blessing of God follows obedience to his word. I mean, look at the Old Testament examples. He says, I put before you blessing and cursing. Choose you this day whom you will serve. And we see throughout, you know, the lives of the patriarchs that when they served God and obeyed God, they were blessed. When they disobeyed God and followed their own ways, they were not blessed. They were judged. And at the very least, if it was something that was neutral, they didn't receive God's blessing. Whereas they could have received his blessing by simply obeying him. So the blessing of God, the revitalization of the church, 
Another benefit would be lessening disagreements resulting from miscommunication, misunderstanding from a man-made system. Because even when our attitude may be right and our motive may be sincere, oftentimes we just get in the way of God doing what he wants to do. Of course, for such leadership to be effective, it must be humble. It must be nurturing. Leaders must exemplify purity and sacrifice and faithfulness. Such leadership is assumed with solemnity and a sense of personal responsibility. Luke tells us in chapter 12, the words of Jesus, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And so James says, not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. More strictly. I can tell you as a pastor that there is not a day that goes by that I don't think about the day that I will stand before God. There's not a day that goes by that I don't think about it. That is how weighty the ministry burden is. And I don't say that for self-serving reasons. Don't pity me. It's also a tremendous privilege and an honor. But it is a serious responsibility when you think, man, I don't want to stand before God for myself, let alone for a bunch of other people. (laughs) And yet we will be judged according to the level of responsibility that we've been given. So faithful elders are doubly blessed and unfaithful elders are doubly judged. Now earlier we talked about how elders are also known as pastors. Actually, there are three terms in the New Testament that describe the same office. One office with three names. Presbyteros means elder. Poimino means pastor. Episcopos means overseer or bishop. And the textual evidence is that all three terms describe one and the same office. Essentially, the same qualifications are given for all three in two passages of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and then Titus chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul uses both terms to refer to the same man in Titus chapter 1. And Peter brings all three terms together in 1 Peter chapter 5. Listen to his words. To the elders, presbyteros, among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds, poimino, of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, episcopeo, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. And so we see in this one verse, Pastor, elder, overseer are all referring to the same office. Throughout the New Testament, the local churches were led by a plurality of elders. In other words, a team of elders provided leadership and oversight for local congregations. In Acts chapter 14, the Bible tells us Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church. 
In Titus chapter 1, Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in every city. Notice that they were to appoint elders, plural, not an elder, but elders. The responsibility of shepherding a church is to be shared by a team of qualified men. So what are the qualifications of elders? Well, they're given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. We pull these two together and here is a quick overview of them. Qualifications of an elder. He must be above reproach. Must be the husband of one wife. That's to say he's to be sexually pure. A one woman man. To be temperate, not given to excess, but being alert, being watchful. To be prudent. So this is a person who is self-disciplined and serious about spiritual things. To be respectable. They lead an ordered and organized life where their priorities are established by God. They're to be hospitable, showing kindness to strangers, opening their home, opening their hearts to people. Not pugnacious. So they don't settle disputes with their fists, but are cool-headed. They're to be gentle, that is considerate, forbearing with others. They're to be peaceable and not quarrelsome. So they're to be peacemakers, looking for how we can bring you know, the body together. They are not to be covetous, so they're not materialistic. They manage their own household well. They're spiritually seasoned. They're not a new convert. They are reputable. So they have a good reputation with those both inside as well as those outside the church. And they are able to teach. And this last qualification is the one that sets them apart from the ministry of deacons. They have a mastery of Christian doctrine, rightfully dividing the word of truth. Does that mean they're perfect at it? Of course not. Always learning, right? But they have come to a place where they have a masterful skill of basic Christian doctrine so that they not only teach it, but are able to refute those who would say otherwise. Those are the qualifications of the elders. What are their responsibilities? Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds. That's that word pastor. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And so if you were to look at all of the various responsibility of the elder and boil them down, I think there are four categories that they would all fall into. Feeding nurturing, guarding, and guiding. Those responsibilities are beautifully illustrated in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my pastor. It's the same word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. It speaks of that nurturing aspect of shepherding ministry. He leads me beside the still waters. There's that guidance that comes. You can picture a, a pastor, a shepherd, laying the rod upon the neck of a sheep tenderly and then just kind of pushing it along into the right direction, away from the thorns, away from the cliff's edge, guiding them. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So he feeds them, right? 
it speaks of that nourishing aspect of feeding the flock. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. How? Well, it's certainly not to beat the sheep over the head, but it's a weapon against the wolf that gives consolation to the sheep because they know this shepherd will lay his life down for me. And that's what Jesus said. I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. That talks of that guarding aspect of pastoral ministry. As a pastor, I take it very seriously, which is why my wife has to tolerate my little sermonettes throughout the week. (laughs) Because things will happen. Not things she's done, but things in the culture at large things among religious leaders um, who have gotten their eyes on the wrong priorities and are making a mockery of the ministry. And it just drives me batty. (laughs) And so I want to pick up the rod (laughs) and I want to go after those who are teaching false doctrine. Why? Because this is the battleground, friends. It's our minds. That is why we are told that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And then those strongholds are defined as vain imagination and everything that would rise up against the knowledge of the truth of God as displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. I thought I was going to teach this morning. I guess I'm I'm preaching a little bit now, but... But it's passionate within me to guard sound doctrine and guard the church because that which hangs in the balance is the eternal souls of men and women. We're not playing games. This is about heaven and hell. It's about eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important than being ready that day when you slip into another world. Are you ready to meet Jesus or not? Because you're going to meet Him even if you don't believe in Him. And then you will believe in Him. But it'll be too late to put your trust in Him. As we deal with these heavy subjects this morning, it's important for us even to pause right now in the middle of a teaching on church governance to just say, if you don't know if you're ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, should you die on the way home from this meeting today, don't let another moment pass. Call out upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask him to come and be the Lord of your life. Just acknowledge, along with the rest of us, Lord, I'm a sinner. When Pastor Greg said, you're a sinner, that was just a reminder of what my conscience has been telling me for all of these years. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Come and be my Savior and be my Lord. Give me your spirit that I might be empowered to live a life that pleases you.
Friends, Jesus said that whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast him aside. For whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call out upon Jesus today in faith, believing the wondrous gospel of grace and find that he is a friend who will stick closer than a brother. Amen. The elders carry out their ministry by overseeing the functions of the church. Again, Paul tells Pastor Timothy, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. This word direct, proistemai, means to stand first. It's general oversight of the church's functions. So the elders are also responsible for teaching and preaching the scriptures. He goes on in that same verse. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. So the elders who direct, it's the elders who are to establish doctrinal issues in the church. Now, they don't do it out of whole cloth. They do it out of rightly dividing the word of truth. That's how. And they proclaim the truth to the congregation. And they do so, hopefully, with faithfulness to the Lord, recognizing that they will give an account for how they have handled the sacred text. But that means that they not only preach the portions of Scripture that the congregation wants to hear, they preach the portions of Scripture that sometimes we wince at hearing. And they must also refute those who contradict sound doctrine. And so again, Paul tells Pastor Titus, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Refute those who oppose it. Must be done. That means that elders must not only be men of the Scripture, they must be men of prayer. James 5.14 Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Elders are to provide spiritual protection from the church. Acts 20 and 28 Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I love the church. I love this church. I feel a responsibility to this church. I love you because God loves you. God loves me. And he's brought me here to pastor this church. What a, what a privilege. What a neat thing. But friends, I take it very seriously because I know that if you're in the church, the only reason you're in the church is because God has called you and ransomed you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. That is an amazing value. The blood of Jesus, more precious than silver and gold and all of the wealth of this world. You are the beloved, for you are in the beloved. 
So I take that very seriously, which means if people get cross-threaded with my church, they're going to get cross-threaded with me. And I'm going to warn you when it comes to the false teachers that are running rampant in our culture. Because I don't want you to sit down and enjoy a steak dinner only to find out later it was laced with cyanide. So as the shepherds of the flock, in a very practical sense, the elders are to determine church policy, Acts 15.22, to oversee the church, Acts 20 and 28, to ordain others to gospel ministry, 1 Timothy 4.4, to rule and teach and preach, 1 Timothy 5.17, to exhort and refute Titus 1.9, and to do all this while setting an example for all, 1 Peter 5.1-3. Why? Because that is what God has called them to do. And that is what Jesus Christ has commissioned them to do. And that is what they will give an account before God's throne for having done, faithfully or unfaithfully. Now, as stated earlier, elder ministry is a group effort. Listen, pastoral authority is too great for one man. Period. Pastoral authority is too great for one man. It's not healthy. And pastoral responsibility is too heavy and too numerous for one man. And that's not healthy. So elder ministry is a group effort effort. Nearly every time that the word elder is used in the New Testament, it is in the plural. Elders. Typically, New Testament churches had more than one elder. So as lead elder of First Baptist Church, I would ask our membership to prayerfully consider transitioning to an elder model of church governance. I would ask you to prayerfully consider that. It's not an ultimatum. The church says, well, thanks for telling us, but no, I'm not going to take my football and go home. (laughs) It's not an ultimatum. It's an exhortation that as you and I have studied the scriptures together and have said, you know, we believe this to be the model of the New Testament church, I would prayerfully ask you to consider it. Consider transitioning to a New Testament elder model of church leadership. And I ask that, uh, that, I ask for that prayerful consideration for a number of reasons. First, because indeed it is the biblical model established by Christ, who is the head of the church. Secondly, it was the exclusive form of church government among the New Testament churches. It wasn't until the early days of the church, after the canon was closed, that we began to add all sorts of trappings to church government. It had a whole lot to do with Christianity be, being proclaimed the official church of the Roman government, the official religion. When we follow the wisdom of Scripture, we are blessed. When we follow our own devices, we make church life more difficult than it needs to be doesn't need to be. Are we always going to agree on everything? Of course not. But may it be that when we find ourselves in disagreement, that the disagreement is settled swiftly, gently, efficiently, effectively, 
and that we're not burrowed into petty discussions and debates that a hundred years from now will not make any difference whatsoever. None. None. That's why. So I would ask you to prayerfully consider adopting an elder-led model, what I believe to be the New Testament model of church governance. So today we talked about the elders. Next Sunday we're going to talk about the deacons. And all of this is leading up to the opportunity for you as a congregation to come together, to have a question and answer session where you're able to ask lots of questions, and I hope that you do. I believe that the Scripture gives us answers to those questions, and if I don't know what they are, I will seek out godly wisdom in the Scriptures to provide an answer. But where it's leading is not, listen, it is not to displace people from ministry, but rather to encourage a greater participation in ministry on the front lines rather than just sitting on committee. In our current structure, that's important work. But it can really bog you down. And it can sap your strength from going out there and being on the front lines and actually engaging in other pe- with other people face-to-face, heart-to-heart ministry rather than a multiplicity of meetings and meetings and meetings. So that's where it's headed. Uh, Not to hide anything, but to just give full disclosure that that's where we're going. But we can't get there without you saying, yes, we understand, we've asked our questions, we agree. Or... Nope, we're too afraid of making that change, so get over it. <laughs> and if that's the case, then we will just, uh, well, we'll just deal with it. And we'll just move on together with the Lord. Amen? Because it's more important that we be in unity. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for giving us your word, even when it comes to practical issues such as church government. We pray today that you will help us to have the courage we need to be able to follow where your truth might lead us, to be able to speak not only to issues in the external world, the world outside of the church, but to even be able to address issues that are inside the church, issues that you've given us wisdom to know how to address. Father, today as we turn our attention now to the opportunity you've given us to provide offerings back to fund the work of the ministry. We pray that we would give to you out of a sense of love and gratitude for that which you've given to us. Take these offerings now and bless them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you give to the work of the Lord.